when I was working at Microsoft, yes, I did enterprise systems management on the Windows team, but that was more about, again, data collection and data management. And then the public sector work I did, which really was the most rewarding part of my time in the, in the organization was helping governments improve services to citizens, improve education, improve healthcare, extend reach, and all of this through using technology as a lever for change. And so coming to Charity Navigator, I was attracted to the opportunity of how can you tell if a charity is making a difference? What is their impact in the world? And so there's a consistency through data collection and data processing in my career that's a little bit hard to see, but it's there. And it's been, I care less about the technology than more what it's, what it's letting us do or letting us understand. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Have you ever wondered when you're selecting a charity that you want to support or even just thinking about it, whether you're actually choosing one that's well-managed and that really does the work that you intend to support? On this show, every time I bring on a not-for-profit, I do quite a bit of research, of legwork. I look at reviews, the good and the bad. I do Google searches like any of us really do. And I connect with others in the same category, sometimes other not-for-profits, to just ask their thoughts about the one I'm considering supporting. In short, I vet them. So you're always going to hear from reputable charities when you're listening to this show, charities that are doing really good work. But there's also another tool in my tool shed that I often use, and that is Charity Navigator. So to talk about charities, choosing those you want to support, and being sure that your dollars and your time are doing the good that you're working to put into the world. I'm joined by Michael Thatcher. Michael leads Charity Navigator. It's in all of its efforts, really, to make impactful philanthropy easier for all of us. Prior to joining Charity Navigator, Michael spent more than 15 years with Microsoft, the last 10 of which as their public sector chief technology officer or CTO. Michael's eclectic background includes years at sea conducting oceanographic research, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He's composed music and danced internationally as the co-founder and co-director of Dance Music Light. He's held various board positions within the nonprofit and tech sectors, holds several patents in enterprise systems management, and has a degree in music from Columbia University in New York. His guiding mantra, follow your heart use your head, make a difference. So we're going to have a bit of an eclectic conversation today as I'm curious to find out more about his interesting history. Michael Thatcher, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karina. I'm really happy to be here. So before we get started, I have to hear about this music, dance to technology journey. I mean, it's not something I would have necessarily imagined as much as I might like to also pursue all of these things. So it's interesting how important our parents can be, I think, in our upbringing and in some of the choices we make in life. And my mother was a musician. My father was a university professor, a mathematical modeler, and 
you know, had a PhD from MIT in ocean engineering. So the ocean was always a huge part of my life. Music was always a huge part of my life. And dance was something that came in a little bit later. But in the same way that I cut the grass for my parents when I was a teenage boy, I also learned how to write software for my dad. And it dates me a little bit, but that I had that as a skill set that I developed as an adolescent. And so when I chose to be a musician and tried to make it as a dancer, my wife and I, we had a successful dance company for about 10 years, successful in the sense that we were performing in South America, the United States and parts of Europe. We never made any money. <laughs> and so the money came in through software programming. And one of the niches that I found myself in, and again, thanks to my dad, was a connection with someone who was doing marine geology and they needed a someone at literally the first time I went out to sea for this guy, Charlie Langmuir, was to help him dig up rocks off the ocean floor on one of the volcanic ridges in the Pacific Ocean. And I fell in love with this work. I also love the concentration of it because you go to sea for three to six weeks and couldn't spend your money. You were working 12 hour days, seven days a week. So you're making good overtime. So I could do in a very concentrated period, I could make a enough money to live off of for a couple of months. And so I did that for on and off for about 10 years until I finally signed on full time at the Oceanographic Institute, Woods Hole Oceanographic. And then I was, I basically stopped dancing. I was a shipboard scientific services group technician and I was spending eight months of my year at, at sea. Came home from a trip one time. I got the ultimatum from my wife, which was new job, new wife, you choose. <laughs> and we ended up in Washington. And from there, eventually found my way into Microsoft. And the rest is sort of led me to where I am now at Charity Navigator. So tell me, how long have you been at Charity Navigator now? It'll be eight years in August. Okay. So a lot has changed in the last eight years in the tech world. I was trying to imagine a world in which you'd gone from oceanography to CTO and a powerful division within Microsoft and understanding really the culture within even that organization has shifted a lot over the years. So it's an interesting story. I just, um, wow, quite the experience in the wild ride, I imagine. It was, and it's been ultimately for me, the use of technology and particularly data has always been something where when you think about the work I did on the ships, it was gathering data for scientists so that they could make sense of the either the geology or the biology within our oceans. When I was working at Microsoft, yes, I did enterprise systems management on the Windows team, but that was more about, again, data collection and data management. And then the public sector work I did, which really was the most rewarding part of my time in the in the organization was helping governments improve services to citizens, improve education, improve healthcare, extend reach, and all of this through using technology as a lever for change. And so coming to Charity Navigator, I was attracted to the opportunity of how can you tell if a charity is making a difference? What is their impact in the world? And so there's a consistency through data collection and data processing in my career it's a little bit hard to see, but it's there. And it's been, I care less about the technology than more what it's, what it's letting us do or letting us understand. Well, and to be an NGO or a not-for-profit in the first place, you have to meet certain metrics. You have to do quite a bit of work to be there. However, I think sometimes when we look at foundations that have been built, 
it's almost like an extension of the expensive hobby of somebody that's wealthy than creating a foundation or a company who's funneling their money into a foundation to do the good that they're working to put into the world. So I wondered if for a moment we could just have a discussion about the terminology in this space. So anybody listening can kind of get a feel for what we're talking about. You have NGO or non-governmental organization, N4P or not-for-profit. You have websites with .orgs often that aren't even 501c3s. 501c3s being the governmental designation they get as a ratified not-for-profit. They have to share their financial <laughs> filings every year and, and they can lose that status if they don't do so. So let's talk about these different kind of branches almost of not-for-profits, how do you see each of them fitting in and and what might be confusing to somebody who's looking to vet specific charity? So I think the whole incorporation structure is, um, it's fairly complex and it's, you have, and you called out 501c3, which is the classification for a working charity that's actually has services that they're providing to, for lack of a better word, I'll say to make the world a better place, whether that's running an animal shelter uh, parts of a hospital, education programs, uh, food banks, shelters, etc. You also have, there's a multitude of, there's a C4, there's a C5, there's a C6, and all of these different classifications within the United States designate different types of nonprofit that may or may not have a tax deduction, that may or may not be providing services, so for example, a C4 is more, these are be the lobbying arms of an organization. And sometimes you have some organizations, think of some of the larger ones like the Sierra Club or the NRA. They have both the C3, which allows for a tax deduction through the donation, and a C4, which is the lobbying arm that allows them to engage with um, the lobbying practice in the at federal and state level. A nuance that's worth noting is that a 501C3 cannot engage politically, they cannot lobby. And so that is why you would have a dual structured organization. I think for the average individual, I think one of the things that we try and do at Charity Navigator is simplify some of these processes. So for example, on our platform, we have a list of all available 501c3 charities that it's essentially a mirror of the IRS master file. There's about 1.6 million charities on that list of those we also have a ratings that we rate about 200,000 of those organizations. And we allow you to give to organizations directly through our website. And one thing to be just really clear about, we don't charge donors to access the website. We don't charge charities to be rated and we don't charge you to give through our giving basket. The only thing you'll pay are any associated credit card fees. But the thing where I'm getting to with this is we won't let you give to a charity that is non-tax deductible. You'll only be able to give to 501c3 organizations. And so that's one way where we take out, trying to sort through what is it and how do I make sense of it and just allow you to give to working charities. Right. Well, this brings up another discussion point you and I covered before we agreed to come on and, and schedule this time. And that was the issue that many confronted with donating money to a charity called Black Lives Matter in Southern California, which is not affiliated in any, any way at all with Black Lives Matter, the movement. And in fact, this caused some controversy because they literally received millions of dollars <laughs> and had not done any corporate filings for their not-for-profit for some time. And so I think they've probably lost their status by now. I don't know exactly where we stand on that, but the real 
damage there is that people thought they were putting money into a specific organization that was a not-for-profit only to find out Black Lives Matter isn't even a not-for-profit. So what do you have to say about uh, this and how can Charity Navigator play a role in helping people really sort through the weed, get through the chaff and ensure their dollars are doing what they want? Sure. I think the situation with Black Lives Matter, the, the organization, and go back, why did that happen? There was a crisis. We had a crisis in our country, and uh, this was following the murder of George Floyd. That moment, that stimulated a lot of quick action, right? And other people like, what do I do? How do I help? And they move very quickly. I think what we're trying to help you do is we're trying to help you keep moving quickly, but make sure you're giving to who you want to be giving to, because one of the things that happens in any crisis is that there will be, unfortunately, there can be pop-ups of look-alike charities, so many very similar names. I'm not saying that was the case in, in the example you're giving, but it happens the war in Ukraine, the earthquake that we had in, in Turkey and Syria. You'll have look-alike organizations that come online, which are fraudulent, and they're actually trying to get your dollars because you're moving quickly. So again, I think the, we're trying to help you do is make sure you know you have found the organization that you want to. If you use our platform to one of the things I said before, we won't let you give to a fake organization. We will let you give to a legitimate organization. And so that might be an organization that is a 501c3 charity that still may not be who you thought you wanted to give to. So look at the information. I would also just take two seconds more to make sure that this is who I think it is. If you don't come to a site like Charity Navigator, find out that it's a legitimate charity before you actually write a check or give them your credit card information. One of the simplest ways is to ask the organization for their employee identification number. If they're unable to give you that, it's a little bit like someone not knowing their social security number. Don't give <laughs> that. Well, very good. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, we also know that and looking at your site, you've rated about 200,000 charities, but it looks like the IRS is a little behind in ratifying some of the filings. So some charities that might otherwise bear that check mark and hey, they're good, don't presently. So what would you say to people if they've identified a charity they know they like and it's not yet rated or isn't presently on your site in that rated capacity? So there are a couple of things. One is the rating right now there are four parts to the rating. There's an accountability and financial part of the rating, which is automatically generated through three years of e-filing of the IRS Form 990, which is the tax form that charities must file. Once we have that, we'll automatically generate the basic rating. There are three other parts. One is culture and community. That's data that you can supply to Candid or log on to the portal at Charity Navigator. So charitynavigator.org forward slash portal. You put in your charity's information there, will authenticate you as the someone who represents that organization, and you can give us additional data. That additional data actually makes you more discoverable on our platform and builds the basis of your rating. So culture and community, leadership and adaptability is looking at very basic leadership skills. Do you have a plan? What's your strategy to achieve that plan? And then finally, we're getting to impact and results. And this is a more in-depth analysis of cost per outcome within specific program service areas. All this information you can access through the portal. So that's for organizations that don't yet have information, really encourage you to try and get as much information in, into the portal as possible because that actually makes you more discoverable to donors. And then the other thing is, and this is now, I believe it's federal law, it went into effect in 2022, 
but everyone has to e-file. So there are reasons where one can have an exception for not e-filing. Try not to do that because e-filing actually makes your digital footprint more available to entities like ourselves. And that in turn lets us raise your profile. Right. Well, that's all fantastic, but it does lead me to another question, which is as a not-for-profit yourself, how do you monetize? How do you gain revenues? Because yes, this is an incredible service you're offering, but you also have to keep the lights on. So what does that look like? So for Charity Navigator, we are a free website. We have ratings on 200,000 organizations. We don't charge for that. That said, we do solicit and about 65, 70% of our annual revenue comes from individual donations. And that's people using our website that find it valuable in their giving process. And they'll leave us, they'll make a small donation at the end of the year. So similar to how Wikipedia runs there. Absolutely. It's almost identical to that. And the remaining portion of our revenue comes from some of the larger foundations that are interested in supporting nonprofit infrastructure. Hmm. Very good. So you mentioned for a bit there the difference between a 501c3 and a 501c4. Now, we're about to enter the, it's the going to be the presidential elections coming up. And so everybody has their eyes on donating to specific political endeavors too, but these are not tax deductible. So can you just give people a brief kind of synopsis of why that might be? Because I think in some cases we think, well, I want to support this cause and I want this company to be able to lobby on my behalf for this not-for-profit and that 501c4 or arm of Sierra Club, as for instance, which you mentioned earlier. Why might we not be able to do that? What are your thoughts? You know, I think this goes back to the original, the creation of the tax code for the charitable sector, which is over 100 years old and actually remained intact until 2017, where there was a revision to the tax code at that point. But the decision that was made by our government over 100 years ago was that if you are going to be in the charitable sector, you should not be influencing the political direction of the country, or that charities themselves could then become a vehicle for political maneuvering. And so that's really why it's been kept out. For example, as a charity ourselves, I periodically have to remind our staff, no politicking in the office, please. We have to really, this is not what your political views stay outside of the organization. Put the blinders on. The reality is you can lose your 501c3 status if you're actively lobbying. And so it's not worth it. Yeah. So can an individual that's, let's say, not an executive for the company that they're working with, uh, the not-for-profit in this case, are they allowed to lobby or is that entering into the murky gray waters of let's not go there? As an individual, you're free to do whatever your rights are as a citizen in this country. You just have to don't, I wouldn't go in there wearing the t-shirt from your company, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to have some separation. Yeah. I was curious on that front because I have lobbied Congress before. I've gone to Capitol Hill in Washington and been there as well doing the same on behalf of the natural products industry. I was always curious about what it would take as a, for instance, if I was to take this podcast and become a 501c3 and then still wanted to be able to have that kind of political power at the same time of going and knocking on doors. And so it's one of the things that has kept me from deciding to go that route because I'm like, well, you know, I'm not really seeking revenues at this point, but when I do, I think I want to do what is a not-for-profit. What does that look like? And then I confront this issue and go, well, hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. 
I'm not an attorney in this matter, and so I should I have to be careful what I say. But there's one is allowed to advocate for one's organization. It's when you cross the line and start lobbying for a particular candidate in that's running for office. I think that's where you really get yourself into a bit of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wonder too how companies like Patagonia have navigated those waters because they are so active. They do have a foundation, so perhaps that's part of it. They also have a publishing house. So I think they've gone through these these <laughs> challenging times as well to figure out a path forward. But of course, at this point, Patagonia is such a large company as a whole that they're able to to do a lot and to have those resources at hand. So let's talk for a moment about how the giving landscape has really evolved in recent years. What are the primary changes that you've seen? There are a couple of things, and there's just been a recent release of giving data, which is showing that in 2022, there was almost a three and a half percent decline in, in donations going into the sector, or about $17 billion, which is significant. So one of the more, I would say, troubling trends that we're seeing is since the year 2000, well, let's say in the year 2000, over two thirds of American households actually gave to charity. As of a few years ago, 2018, I believe the number was, is that it's less than half of US households are, are giving to charity at this point. Now, significant portion of that, it relates to the decline in religious giving. Giving to religions, irrespective of the religion, has always been the bulk of charitable giving. And it's still close to 30% and the largest category. That has declined over the last 10 years and beyond. So I think that's one of the trends we're seeing. The other shift is that there's a there's a decline in, in trust in the charitable sector. And I think this is also troubling, but it, it relates back to something we talked about before, which is the confusion, sometimes the lookalikes, the, the mistakes that are made by not actually doing adequate vetting, that has compromised faith in the sector. At the same time, there's more faith in the charitable sector than there is in the for-profit sector and there is in our U.S. government at this point. So we're still on the top of the pile, but it's declining. And I would say trust in general has declined. And so I think that is a, that's going to be a problem for us. As far as where are people giving, that has stayed fairly consistent. I mean, there were some shifts when we went through pandemic period, there was an increase in giving to humanitarian needs and a decline in giving to the arts and to the environment, for example. There's been a return to giving to those entities and that that those parts of the sector in the last year or so. So it tends to have a, follows what's happening in the world to a certain extent. So when I think about the reasons that people might not be giving as much. It's hard to divorce that from the reality of inflation today and from the fact that while our incomes might have continued to rise, the costs of living have outpaced that. And so what people are making today as far as their disposable income is it the same as it was even a decade ago. And so I wonder what your thoughts are about how charities can really kind of pool their collective representation to help those that perhaps have more disposable income understand the impacts that they can make through charity. You know, because if you're only able to get a few dollars from, let's say, people who are on the lower tier of that, you might continue to struggle. It's just something I've been thinking about as we are in these unprecedented times with COVID, with our political distrust and the fallout that has spread from the politics side to for-profit businesses and even not-for-profits. 
I mean, there are a couple of things in what, what you've just mentioned. And I think one is, you know, I mentioned there are 1.6 million charities. That's a lot. And many of them, the vast majority of them are tiny. Mm-hmm. And so the ability and the facility to collaborate, to consolidate, to work together towards shared outcomes and improving different situations, regardless what they are, whether it's you know shelters or food, food scarcity, that would be such an asset to our ability to really make a difference because the more organizations you have, the more sort of organizational structure and just maintaining the entity that costs money. And it takes away from necessarily focusing on doing good. And so I think if we could focus more on collaboration and consolidation, that would be a huge bonus for the sector itself. I think the other challenge, you know, with the, I mean, it's right what you're calling out in the sense that, you know, the inflation, the rise in interest rates, that affects the individual donors, but you have to kind of extrapolate out. That also affects the charities. Mm-hmm. So the $100,000 they had, last year is not isn't worth as much this year and so even if you're still getting a big gift and the gifts remain consistent what happens is people set their budgets on on giving at certain dollar amounts but you have to correct for inflation and i think someone who's running a charity we made some adjustments to our employees salaries based on inflation but guess what that costs us more money and we didn't necessarily get more money and so it is a bit of a getting stuck between a rock and a hard place but i do think it's helping people understand that the need is still there. I also think that entities like Charity Navigator help people who have less money give more strategically and potentially make a bigger impact uh, with the little that they have at this time. That's all very good news. Um, I will say that there's no digging us swiftly out of these weird economic times. So having control over the little things that we can while still working to make sure that the dollars and cents that we donate are going where we want them to. Now, you mentioned something in this answer that I want to touch back on, and that is collaboration between not-for-profits. Not necessarily always consolidation, because I think in special cases, like for instance, in animal rescues, there is regional need where we have, where consolidation becomes very difficult. And one such example is Little Hill Farm, a sanctuary that my friend Helbard Alcassade runs with his wife, Camilla. And they have had a few moments arise where it's like suddenly a puppy mill is found and they got to find homes for all these puppies. And in this case, since they're working more with farm animals, it might be goats or whatever. And now you have to figure out where all of these animals are going to live, how they're going to be fed, how they'll get the veterinary care they need and everything else, which can be very expensive and come out of nowhere. And everyone in that sector has a desire to help. And so what they've essentially been able to do is collaborate with other regional animal shelters and animal rescues to work to quickly find solutions in place until a permanent resolution can be achieved. And I think that's, it's a powerful set of charities that are working to serve as animal rescues, whether it be for farm animals or for the typical pets. But I really do think we need to see more of that cross-collaboration and connection in other sectors as well, especially when you're talking about providing services for food and for shelter and beyond that, just to the services that people might need. So I'm curious to see if you see 
some sort of a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to that? Are you seeing positive moves and do you have examples from which to draw? I have some, and I'll speak more specifically to our own work at Charity Navigator, which, you know, as an infrastructure player, we seek to engage as much as we can with other infrastructure players. And I talked about data before. We need data. We need continuously updated data as do some of the other players. And so what we're, we're working together, for example, GuideStar by Candid is a, is a partner organization that we work with. We share data between our organizations. In some cases, we buy data from them. And we're doing that in a way to actually make it easier on the working charities to get their information to our various platforms. So it's, it's essentially reduced the load on the people that you're actually trying to serve, right? Don't make it hard for them to give you information. And that has actually borne fruit and has allowed us to do some of the expansion that we've had over the ratings in the last couple of years. The other area that I'm seeing that I think is light at the end of the tunnel is that there's a lot of focus now on equity and giving with equity, particularly for smaller organizations, so many that are under fiscal sponsorship. And so you have some of the large foundations that are creating convenings where they're bringing a lot of the similar players together so that they can meet each other. They can actually start seeing where are their points of intersection. And that has led to some interesting collaborations that are really quite beneficial. So to circle this all back to a direct question for you, and one that I think your the Charity Navigator really supports, what factors should we all be considering before we donate to an organization? And are there specific things outside of using Charity Navigator that you could point to for additional resources? We've created a framework within our ratings, which is a usable framework with or without the ratings. And so if you think about it, what you're hoping for, I would look for strong leadership. I would look for financial integrity. I would look for transparency. Tell me what's going on. Show me what's good, what's not so good. You also want to know that there's a theory of change or that they actually have a plan. What is the change that they're trying to make in the world and how are they achieving that? You clearly, if you can, you want to have them articulate the impact that they're making in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important is on what knowledge are you basing your assumptions? And so are you basing your work on prior research or is it pure innovation? There's nothing wrong with pure innovation, but you want to know that they've actually done some kind of homework in what they're doing. A lot of these things we try and, and capture in our ratings. The other thing, so if you don't have our ratings and you don't have our framework, you can also go to Candid, which is another platform that collects data on nonprofits. You could go to BBB's Wise Giving Alliance or the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance. These are all other sources of information. The IRS and its website has all of the tax forms available there for people to download and or review. I think you'll find the tax documents a little bit uh, difficult to read. <laughs> unless you're an, I don't know, if you're an accountant or something. Yeah, unless you're an accountant and you love that kind of stuff. And I think that's one thing we've tried to do is just make that simpler for you. So charitynavigator.org, you've got the, for every charity, we've got the information from their tax forms in a much more human readable format. Human readable format. That's a good thing. Now, you mentioned financial integrity, and I think this is all connecting to that, but 
So something that I used to call as a metric would be what percent of the money that they receive is actually going to do the good. And I think you have a different perspective on that. So I'd love to hear your take. Sure. It's worth noting this is a change in perspective. So Charity Navigator for years was really because the only data we had was the financial information from the IRS, which very clearly sort of delineates between program expense, fundraising expense, and administrative expenses. And for many years, I think folks only wanted to pay for program expenses. So in other words, the actual work or the, that was the service you were paying for, whether it was the shelter or uh, giving food, digging wells, whatever that was. The reality is that that tells you how the organization has spent your money in, the, in, in just that instance. It doesn't tell you how they're actually sustaining their business. And charities, these are non, or let's say nonprofits are professional organizations that are hiring people with varying skill sets, varying salary needs and requirements, and they're trying to run a sustained business. If they're not paying for what it takes to run a business, they're actually not going to be around for very long, or their staff is going to spin out of the organization on a fairly frequent basis because at a certain point in time, they're not able to make a living or they're not able to put their kids through school, whatever it is, there's a need to pay what it takes to actually get the work done and sustain the organizations. And so our focus right now is really on looking at what is the impact that the organization is achieving and are they a healthy organization that's going to be around and able to make impact over the years to come? Well, I only have the experience of having worked for a couple of charities over the years. One on more of a volunteer basis, my father-in-law is not-for-profit, the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation. I interviewed him on episode six of this podcast early on. Gee, I wonder why. And then the other was the William James Association. And I'm not even sure if the William James Association is still around, but they were based in Santa Cruz. And they sent artists to prisons to teach prisoners arts as part of their rehabilitation. And in many cases, those prisoners would exit and be part of art shows and things along those lines to draw awareness to their plight and to also be part of their reform. It was really a beautiful organization. I hope that they're still around. But I was even working for them as part of my college endeavors. So they got to pay me less or, or below minimum wage because I was getting college credit for it. And this is one of the ways in which organizations can put a lot of good into the world as an NGO or as a, a 501c3 without having to incur such incredible expenses. But to your point, often not-for-profit, these jobs get seen as, oh, well, they don't pay well or they don't pay as much. And so people go to the for-profit sector. And I've seen that change in particular through some of the larger not-for-profit organizations like Lucille Packard Foundation or if you want to look at Goodwill Industries as a, for example, that many people are familiar with, you know, they do pay pretty well because they acknowledge that they have to pay a living wage for the jobs that they're having done. And they might be able to access and take care of some of their rudimentary responsibilities through volunteer hours, like Lasagna Love, an organization that I also interviewed on this podcast who was able to even tap on the shoulders of students at MIT to have them help write an algorithm for their work. But that's still a business. And I think that this is the part that people need to kind of understand, like a not-for-profit has a board. That board 
votes on certain things and make sure that the money is well managed. You can have a treasurer, president, etc. In fact, the president can't also be the treasurer if I if I remember correctly. So there's rules in place that dictate how one of these organizations can be run to ensure its responsibility and that they're actually staying the course of commitment to cause. So when you say to me something like 6 million charities out there, 200,000 of which are rated, I'm sitting there thinking, how are these even really run and, and do they deserve the rating of 501c3 in many cases? I know the answer is probably not easy to divine, but part of the reason you only rate so many. <laughs> we are limited by the data that we were able to receive. And so, yeah, it's there's there's such a large quantity that also the, the one thing is you have the vast majority are actually really quite small and they don't file that much information. So there are three different forms that get filed. There's a postcard, which is for smallest organizations, which is literally a pulse that you send in on an annual basis to just let the IRS know you're still alive. Mm-hmm. There's not much data other than your name, your employee identification number and, and um, address and a couple of other things. Then there's a 990EZ, which is a it's a little bit more information. And then there's finally the full 990. And so the full 990 is filed by organizations of about $200,000 in annual revenue and above. That's a large portion of them that are sort of below a million dollars in annual revenue, but the vast majority are even less than that. And so I think that's why it's hard to provide an evaluation if you don't have data. And that just makes it, it's fairly easy to create a 501c3 organization in this country. Fairly easy, but still a mountain of paperwork. (laughs) It sure is. It sure is. I've I've been there. (laughs) Well, at this point, I like to ask my guests a simple question in preparation to close. And that's, if there's a question that I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I have, you could ask and answer it. Or if there's a closing thought or just something else that you thought we should discuss before we wrap, I leave you the floor. If you think about giving it does start with the emotions. There's something in you that either it gets touched or there's, you know, I've had one person say to me once, you know, causes grab you by the heart and something really, it either upsets you, it makes you angry. You want to do something about it. And that emotion is really powerful. And and it's such a great motor to like, to really do good in the world, but add a little bit of thinking and uh, analysis to that emotional energy. And then I think you can make a difference. And so this idea that I have in terms of how I think of my own process is that I do follow my heart. My heart has led me to some of the most amazing places and and opportunities in the world. You got to use your head. You've got to sort of you know, bring the two things together and then magic happens. And so I think if you can follow your heart and use your head, you really will make a difference in the world. And that's something I just I wish everyone would do when they think about charitable giving. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for that closing thought. I couldn't agree more. Aligning your passion and your purpose and your thinking, all of it in one, you'll have more impact. If that's your professional pursuit, same thing applies. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Karina. To connect with Michael Thatcher and Charity Navigator, visit our show notes, or you can visit caremorebebetter.com, where we have complete transcripts, links to all of the tools and assets that Michael shared with us today, and more. You can also go directly to charitynavigator.org and review all the charities that you're curious about right there on the site. As always, I'll include those direct links with our show notes so that you're aware of their most active spaces, be it in social media, their website, and more. 
While you do visit caremorebebetter.com, I hope that you'll let me know what you thought of today's episode. You can leave me a voice message by tapping that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, or you can even just send me an email note directly from the site. I'll be happy as always to answer any questions that you feel we didn't cover in today's episode, and even tap Michael on the shoulder too. Thank you listeners and watchers now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together when we align our intentions, our thoughts, our purpose, we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even use tools like Charity Navigator to select the charities that are truly worthy of our intention and our support, ones that truly embody the mission of our hearts. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Thank you.